Hello and welcome. My name is Hillary Jewhurst, and in my role as the head of third-party risk education and advocacy at Venminder, I get a lot of questions about emerging regulatory requirements. So in October last year, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, proposed a new rule under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940s. And this new rule is meant to prohibit registered investment advisors also known as RIAs, from outsourcing certain services or functions without first meeting minimum requirements. Now, certainly this proposed rule has raised a lot of questions and some concerns as RIAs are preparing to meet these new requirements. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Morris, a principal at Whipfley, to help us dive into the proposed rule and what it means for RIAs and how to prepare for compliance. Mike, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and organization, Whipfly? How does Whipfly help its clients with regulatory compliance? Well, thank you, Hillary. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, I've been working in the financial services space since 1999. Uh, at Whipfly, we are helping our registered investment advisors and broker dealers around uh, compliance and general business uh, functions. Uh, a lot of what I focus on is either working with the RIAs directly or with the third parties that are serving them uh, and, and really around vendor management compliance. So I've seen the evolution of the third parties become more complex over the years and the requirements become more stringent. And so now with this new guidance, uh, it's good to dig into this and really show what it's all about and uh, help, help uh, our audience understand what they need to be doing. Great. Well, it sounds like we certainly have the right expert here today. So I want to begin by asking you, why now? Why is the SEC proposing this rule now? And what are the drivers for change? You know, what are the most significant challenges RIAs might face as they prepare for compliance? Well, I'll paraphrase a little bit, but basically, basically the SEC is concerned that investment advisors are just setting it, forgetting it when it comes to outsourcing. Uh, outsourcing isn't new. It's been around for over 40 years. And uh, when I've been working in uh, the, the pieces that I've worked at, uh, started in the early 90s, really putting more focus on these vendor relationships, uh, and especially as an accounting firm, looking at how, how those impact the financial statements. But over the years, it's become even more complex. And now you look at model validations around you know, AI machine learning, you have blockchain, uh, getting involved with some of these these companies, these earlier stage companies, uh, it's just becoming more complex. And I think the SEC finally said we've got to really you know put a line in the sand and say uh, we need to enforce this a little bit more strong, uh, more stringently. Wow. So that's great information. So I do have a question. The comment period for the proposed rule that ended back in December 2022, and it looks like more than half of the comments were critical. Uh, about the potential for increased compliance costs and burdens. In your opinion, should RIAs expect the SEC to change the proposed rule based on those comments? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think the SEC is going to change the guidance. I think it's pretty much going to stick to where it's written today. Uh, recently in the financial institution world, uh, their regulators released uh, interagency guidance on third-party uh, risk relationships. And they had a lot of comments and suggestions, but the final guidance that came out pretty much just followed the uh, proposed guidance uh, that came out in the first place. Okay, so we can probably assume the rule is going to move forward just as proposed. So let's dive into some of those key requirements. 
you know, even though the document for the proposed rule is about 223 pages long, do you think you could summarize it for us in sort of a Cliff Notes version? You know, what are some of the key points and requirements? Yeah, uh, looking at the, the item 7C and form ADV part 1A, uh, the changes that we're going to have to look at are uh, adding, indicating whether they outsource any covered functions, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. Uh, do they uh, disclose information of each of their service providers, uh, legal entities, primary business names, uh, uh, legal entity identifier, address the service provider. They're going to have to indicate whether the identified service provider is a related person of the advisor, uh, the date the service provider was first engaged. So we will have to go back in time uh, for uh, these, these third parties we, we've uh, engaged in the past. And the covered functions that the service provider is engaged to perform. They're also going to require uh, the entities, uh, the RIAs to identify all covered entities, perform a risk assessment, uh, perform some due diligence and ongoing monitoring, uh, and uh, orderly termination as well. It's interesting that they uh, estimate it's going to take roughly 329 hours in aggregate for small advisors, uh, with the annualized uh, monetized internal cost to be roughly $98,000. So this is just for the small advisors. Wow. Well, that's a lot. So what exactly is a covered function and how should RIAs treat a vendor if they're unsure whether it's a covered function or not? Really, it's any function that is necessary to perform advisory services uh, that's in compliance with federal security laws. I think the simplest way to, to think of a covered function is that the function is part of your fiduciary duty to your clients. It's, it's a covered function and we need to make sure we're, we're covering that. Uh, so if you're outsourcing a function, you still have fiduciary re duty responsibility. And, and so this oversight is going to be critical in, in showing that you are executing that fiduciary duty. You have to uh, oversee the vendor as if you're performing the covered function in-house. So if you were to do it yourself, uh, what would you, those controls to be? And, and we need to uh, project those onto the third parties. Um, some examples that they're showing are, are pricing, reconciliation, uh, regulatory compliance. There's a lot of reg tech coming out now. Uh, valuation. Mm -hmm. Uh, the rule does not include clerical or general office functions, but a few other other covered functions uh, categories would be advisor sub advisor roles, uh, client service, cybersecurity, uh, investment risk. The list goes on. It's, it's in the guidance, but uh, they give a lot of good examples of what those covered functions could be. Uh, we do need to determine whether the service provider could create a material negative impact on us. Uh, like day-to-day -day operations, are they available? Are they going to be there tomorrow when, when we, we start our operations? Um, the loss or disclosure of uh, public, personally identifiable information of our clients. Uh, the existence of robust internal backup, you know, they're keeping our data secure and backed up. Uh, whether this service provider is making or maintaining critical records for us. Uh, those are the things that uh, factors that will lead to us determining whether they're a covered function. And if we're not sure, we do need to lean towards uh, including them in our assessment as a covered function. Uh, one area I do usually recommend starting with is just look through your accounts payable list and start looking at the vendors that you pay and start thinking about you know, how they impact you. And do, are you outsourcing fiduciary duty to them? Great. That's super helpful. So now we know who's in scope. Um, could you give us a brief overview of due diligence? What what does that process look like? Well, really, first we need to identify the nature and the scope of the covered functions uh, that the service provider is performing. Uh, really carve out what they're doing, and again, what those fiduciary duties that we're outsourcing are. 
Uh, the guidance does offer an example of an index provider. If a covered function is an index provider, then the identification of the nature of the scope of the function covered might relate to things such as index license terms, uh, rebalancing frequency, frequency of data delivery from the service provider uh, to the advisor. Uh, and once we have our list of covered functions, we want to create a risk assessment. We really need to create a risk assessment. And that's looking at the various things such as the sensitivity of the information and the data we're providing them. Is it sensitive? Uh, how complex is the function being outsourced? I mentioned AI, uh, blockchain. If it's if it's more complex and we're relying on uh, decision making from, from uh, more advanced technology, then that is more complex and we need to be uh, considerate of that, that risk. Uh, the reliability and accuracy of the information of the function delivered. Uh, are there available alternatives in the event that the service provider can't continue to help us out? Uh, the speed at which the function could be moved if we do feel like we have to to uh, to change a service provider. Uh, we'll talk about orderly termination, but uh, existing and potential conflicts of service. Uh, those could be such things as uh, we, you know, we're supposed to help all customers at the same time, but we're actually going to prioritize our most profitable customers first. So we do want to be careful that they uh, don't have any kind of conflicts of service. And just some other areas are what's their competence? How long they've been in business? Is there negative news about them? Have you checked their references? You know, the capacity, especially earlier stage companies, how big is their infrastructure? Do they have similar size clients? Have they successfully uh, test their disaster recovery plan to make sure the capacity can fit uh, the current customer customer base. Uh, do they have the resources necessary to, to provide to perform the covered function? You know, experienced team, uh, succession plan, cross training for critical functions. They have high turnover. Uh, their coordination for complying with federal security laws and compliance. Do they have a a uh, compliance officer? And there's a few novel risks they mention as well. Is international operations. Uh, limited or financial, uh, limited financial operational history, uh, lack of financial operational transparency, uh, lack of operating capital. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, financial health in a minute, and sometimes it's capitalization and, and investment money. Uh, infrastructure uh, susceptibility to extreme weather. Are they in a hurricane zone? Uh, or lack of adequate data security or, or prior service failures. So those are things to think about when we're, we're talking about uh, covered functions and outsourcing. And if an advisor determines that the risk of an outsourced uh, provider is relatively high, then we should consider adjusting our due diligence accordingly. Uh, you know, that needs to be commiserate with the risk of the assessment we've performed on them. Mm -hmm. So risk-based due diligence, but it still should be very comprehensive. So once they go through this process, what are some of the common red flags one might discover during this initial due diligence process? Yeah, when when we've either worked with the the RIAs directly helping them with their their process, or we've worked with the the third parties, the initial we see red flags. And some of the initial red flags they they don't seem to understand what you're asking for, or they try to tell you they don't need it. Uh, that's a big red flag right there. Uh, mm -hmm. There can be gaps in the types of documentation they provide. For example, they may be missing information related to cyber resilience or their financial condition. Uh, sometimes they're hiding things. You know, if they if they know their financial condition is bad, they may slow play trying to get you any information because they don't want you to see it. Uh, other red flags would be they have significant findings in their audit reports and they don't have any remediation plans. Uh, the first thing you should say is, hey, you, you, you've got findings in this report. What are you doing about it? And if they don't have a good, clear answer, that's a red flag right there. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing to consider, too, is poor financials. Uh, what we see over time is they may start eliminating key controls that were in place. Uh, or could even go out of business in, in the longer run. So we want to be careful around those types of red flags. 
Well, that's very helpful, Mike. So gathering these documents as evidence of the vendor's control environment is really important. But I want to talk about um, critical vendors, those that provide a critical function. What sort of due diligence documents specifically would the RIA need to collect from that critical vendor or a vendor providing a high risk function? Yeah, the first thing we usually start with is a SOC report, a service organization control report. And you'll hear two types of those. I won't get too too far into depth here, but a, a SOC 1 report is typically around financial processing. So they're processing transactions, debits and credits for you. Uh, that's that's usually what you need when they're processing, uh, again, financial transactions. If they're not, a SOC 2 is, is looking at security, availability of the systems, confidentiality around the information they have, uh, processing integrity, privacy. So those are some things that we would want to look at if they're not processing financial transactions. We are seeing a lot of, of vendors start providing both a SOC 1 and a SOC 2. Again, I won't go too mm -hmm. far into depth, but getting a SOC report is a good starting place. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that's important. But if they, it's looking at the controls around how they manage the services for you. And if there are any significant issues or findings, those are things that we need to follow up on and, and make sure they have a remediation plan and getting subsequent SOC reports. They typically come out annually uh, and making sure they don't have, have uh, repeat findings in there. We want to see evidence that they've had a pen test done by an independent party in the last 12 months. We're not going to get the pen test. We shouldn't ask for that. It's business sensitive, but they should be able to provide us with a memo showing, uh, hey, here's who did it. Here's the scope and here's the, the date they performed it. You know, we can do our due diligence on the company, making sure they're, they're vetted, they're, they're a qualified company. Uh, but it's important to have that information. Getting a yeah. business continuity plan, I mentioned availability before. Uh, that's how they're going to plan to recover from a business interruption or disaster. Uh, we want to make sure they have a plan to have an order, orderly uh, recovery and a timely recovery uh, because we're relying on them uh, for, for that service. Uh, any information security program information they have uh, around how they protect the non-public customer information and your, your sensitive business information. Uh, an incident response plan, if they do think they've had a breach or a cybersecurity issue, do they have a plan to get back uh, and look into it and do forensics evidence and figure out the impact? Uh, and are, do they have a process for notifying you if it's your customer information? Because at the end of the day, now that's your incident response plan that needs to be enacted. Mm -hmm. Looking for audited financial statements. Uh, some of the earlier stage companies may not have that. Uh, they may have capitalization. We can we can talk about you know what what that capitalization is and how they're they're going to be around for a while. Uh, but uh, ideally, we'd have audited financial statements. So a third party coming in and providing a, a financial statements that we can look at and see their financial health. Uh, insurance coverage, including cyber, uh, we want to make sure that that's current and they're maintaining that. Uh, vendor due diligence risk assessment. Are they looking at their vendors? And do they have any process around that? Uh, evidence that they're performing the annual due diligence on their their, their vendors. Uh, and if they're using models, especially the AI uh, machine learning I mentioned before, they have a model validation performed by an independent third party. Uh, we're relying on those models to make decisions for us. We want to make sure that those are working correctly and things like bias aren't creeping in or getting anything that's going to hurt us from a compliance standpoint. Mm. Some more advanced uh, evidence could be evidence they've tested their business continuity plan in the last 12 months. Uh, and evidence they've tested their instant response plan in the last 12 months. Uh, some companies may not have that. It's not a, a solid requirement, but it is good practice if, if we can get that from them. Wow. So that's a lot of information. So 
what kind of challenges might an RA face when they're trying to collect or review all this uh, due diligence? Well, it's scary when you think of the the number of covered entities most of our RIAs are going to have, and it's making sure we get all the documentation we need. Uh, vendors are getting better about providing due diligence packages that are comprehensive, but if you're sitting there trying to pull, oh, I need your cyber resilience, well, that'll be out later this year. We need your SOC report. Well, that comes out later this year. You know, maintaining that, making sure you're getting all the documentation for each vendor can be very tricky. Uh, getting the correct documents. Sometimes they won't send you the right information. Uh, don't just assume that it's the correct information. We really really need to review it and understand it and make sure it's correct. Uh, I mentioned before, but some resistance from third parties in providing documentation. Uh, there could be reasons why. I know one of our uh, third parties we were work, working with didn't want to release their SOC report because it had significant findings around application development and they didn't want their customers to see that. Uh, so if they're giving resistance, that's that's a challenge, and we've we've got to figure out how to 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 beat that challenge. And just getting them to provide the correct documents timely that can be a pain, and we have to bird dog it and make sure we're getting out there and and talking with our with our vendors regularly. Uh, again, they're getting better about putting you know a com comprehensive package together, but not all of them do that. Um, some of them are not doing it an annually, creating the due diligence document annually. They may skip a year or uh, uh, m multiple years because they don't want to. They want to save time and money. Uh, so if they're not doing it annually, we need to make sure we're pressuring them to do that. Uh, we need to understand how to review and interpret SOC reports and other due diligence documents. Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, and then following up with issues identified during the process. You know, we can't just assume they're going to fix it. We do need to make sure if it's significant, we need to get with the vendor and do they have a remediation plan and how are they going to prove that they're they're fixing that timely? We don't want to wait a whole calendar year to find out they didn't do anything. Uh, so some things to consider are making due diligence a contractual requirement, having these these items be a requirement, having a package in uh, that you're going to get annually to help you out, and also include a right to audit clause. Uh, we do get called in from time to time to do site visits on our third-party vendors uh, for our customers uh, because they aren't providing the information. We really need to get in and look under the hood and figure out what's going on over there uh, because that may be time to start thinking about a new vendor. Mm. So speaking of contracts and similar items, what about subcontracting agreements? Uh, what should the RIAs look for when it comes to fourth parties and subcontracting agreements? Yeah, so what we see is just like we're outsourcing, our vendors are outsourcing. And so they have subservice organizations. And what's scary is those subservice organizations may also have uh, their own vendors involved there. And so what we want to be careful of is making sure we understand where that risk extends to. Uh, we need to understand these relationships and as part of our fiduciary duty, determine what we can do to ensure there aren't risk presence at those subcontractors. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago <clears throat> that the they our third parties need to be performing risk management as well. They need to do vendor due diligence. Do they have a risk assessment? Are they following the same rules we're following? Uh, as this as this guidance comes comes out, it's going to put pressure on them, or it should put pressure on them, to start following that guidance as well. Uh, we don't have contractual agreements with those subservice organizations, so we do have to rely on our third parties to uh, make sure that they're doing something and, and that they're they're. Uh, process is as stringent as what we're, we're required to have. Mm. So there's a lot here for the RIAs to know and do is we know that they have to review those vendors that are providing the covered functions. We know due diligence is paramount, but apparently it doesn't end there. 
the RAA still has to monitor these vendors. So can you tell us what's typically involved in monitoring for those vendors? Yeah, well, the guidance isn't finalized uh, and it doesn't necessarily say the exact cadence. Uh, we assume it's going to be at least annually. Uh, if there are key reports or metrics or service level agreements that we need to monitor, uh, that may be more frequent than annually. And there needs to be a cadence there as well. Is it daily? Is it monthly, weekly? How critical is it? Uh, and if we're doing that, we need to make sure we're documenting that and showing that we're not just setting it and forgetting it, that we are doing a part of our, our due diligence. And that's what the regulators are going to want to come in and see uh, when they come in to, to look at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you might decide on a monitoring frequency, but that can change throughout the engagement. So what are some examples or events or situations that might require that increased monitoring? Well, the higher the higher the risk of the activity, the more scrutiny we do need to place on it. But really looking at issues identified or gaps in their documentation, we can't just wait a year for them to do something about that. We need to understand what they're actively doing to, to correct our, our issues that are affecting our fiduciary duty and how we're protecting our customers. So, um, you know, think about the reputation risk. Our customers don't know that we're outsourcing all this information, all, all these all these duties and these functions. Uh, we need to make sure that we're protecting ourselves from, you know, any, any of our vendors that may be doing something they shouldn't be doing or just not being proactive in fixing issues that are identified. Uh, so I think it's important that we need to make sure that there's an emphasis on that on them remediating any issues that were identified and that we feel like it's it's happening timely, that we're not again waiting a year to find out, oops, you didn't fix it. And I've been at risk even longer than I thought I, I should be. Mm. So the rule also states that ongoing monitoring is really meant to validate whether it's appropriate to continue to outsource the function and use that particular service provider. So suppose an RA decides they no longer want or need to outsource that particular covered function. What are the next steps in ending the relationship? And how does this all relate to that orderly termination that you mentioned a bit earlier? Yeah, unfortunately I've seen where we haven't planned for an orderly termination and we want to leave the vendor and find out, oh, it's going to cost $50,000 to get your data back, you know, get it in a format you can pass on to your new vendor. Uh, there's going to be other costs associated with this, not not understanding these up front, um, having that orderly termination as part of our initial due diligence, you know, what is the what is the process for getting out of this contract? What is the process uh, uh, for um, us being able to get out of this in an orderly fashion so that we can you know keep our our processes moving forward these covered functions that we're relying on uh, outsourced uh, to continue going forward as we move to a new vendor so it, it is important early on we need to understand the due diligence and the, and the software packages we're bringing in and what is the data mi migration like uh, what would happen if we needed to move it in-house could we be able to handle that uh, these are things we should be thinking about up front, not on the back end when our backs against the wall and we realize, wow, we may not be able to get out of this until the contract actually ends or uh, it's going to cost us too much. We didn't realize how much that was going to be and we're, we're, we're in a bad situation. Mm. Well, it's clear these RAs have a lot to do to ensure compliance with this proposed rule, but what should be the first step for an RAA that has no due diligence or ongoing monitoring process? You know, how can they get these processes in place or improve them? Yeah, I think the first step is reviewing that documentation and it is, uh, as you said, it's a lengthy document, but uh, get outside help. You know, have someone experienced guide you down the path. 
Uh, it's going to be overwhelming at first, especially for the smaller RIAs. Uh, this is going to be a burden on them. Uh, you know, even for an average size RA, it's going to be a time-consuming process in year one, especially uh, really going through that risk assessment, getting it set, uh, determining what documents you need, which vendors you need to follow, uh, and then getting a regular cadence in place to make sure we're getting that information, that the vendors are providing that information. So, yeah, I think getting help is going to be key, uh, making sure we find a trusted provider that can help us uh, uh, get get that help to get moving because it is going to be a timely process, time-consuming process. Yeah, sounds like. Mike, I'm sure this conversation has been so helpful for so many RIAs out there, but can you recommend any additional third-party risk management guidance that RIAs should review, you know, maybe some best practices, and do you have any final thoughts or words of advice? Well, the financial institutions have been doing this for a little bit longer, so the, the community banks and the credit unions and, and the Federal Financial Examination Council, the FFIEC, has guidance. They have IT handbooks that are available for free. Uh, that is pretty well vetted and most likely going to be very parallel to what we're going to be seeing. Uh, you know, due diligence is due diligence, and once we you know understand what we need to be getting and, and how often we need to get it, uh, it could have some guidance around the risk assessment process, you know, a little more information around uh, how we do perform the due diligence. So I think that's that's a good place to look as well. Um, but really, just in in general, it's getting started. You know, getting your your accounts payable, uh, list out, figure out who you're paying, figure out you know what fiduciary duty you're outsourcing, uh, and start start now. You know, start planning because as soon as it is required, you're going to start getting pressure to to see what you're doing, and and it's going to take some time. So I say get started. You know. You know, put into bite-sized chunks. Uh, I don't think the guidance is going to change much. So, so go ahead and get started. And if you need help, you know, ask for help. Well, there you have it, Mike. Thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.